Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, yogis. I'm so pleased to be bringing you a conversation this week between myself and my yoga teacher, who is an Ayurvedic practitioner, Mona Warner. Mona is legit. She's the real deal. She is kind and grounded and so trying to live within the ethical guidelines of yoga, always exploring what those are. But if you wanted to connect with someone who genuinely has these principles in their bones, in the very marrow of their bones, then that's Mona Warner. I really can't say enough good things about this person I love so much. But I'll tell you a little bit officially about her. She is the owner and operator of Janati Yoga School in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. And she has a wonderful husband named Glenn, who is the backbone I know of all that she does and her crazy animals. She's a registered yoga teacher trainer with the Yoga Alliance, a National Ayurvedic Medical Association recognized Ayurvedic yoga therapist and certified Ayurvedic practitioner. She's the author of two upcoming books, which you should obviously get your hands on, including Ayurvedic Yoga and Ayurveda's Three Pillars of Health. When she's not teaching, practicing, or talking about Vedic sciences, you might find her eating chocolate, reading a book on a beach, climbing a mountain in Ireland, or ziplining in Costa Rica. And I can also confirm the chocolate. I remember when Mona did a 40-day no-chocolate fast, and in Ayurveda, we say that it takes 40 days to create change on all levels of tissues, and she said to me that this would be the first time she created Ojas. Uh, or sweetness or nectar at 40 days without chocolate. Before we dive in, a reminder that you can find me in February for two trainings, a weekend on Ayurvedic yoga, actually, Feb 2nd and 3rd, as well as a four-day yin and mellow yoga training at the end of February from the 21st to the 24th. Now, mobility and functional movement is absolutely my bag, but... As much as movement is important, as is stillness. So in that training, we look at when movement, when stretch, what is stretch, what are the limits of it, what are the opportunities, and then we look at it on that vertically integrated levels of experience. So yes, the physical, but also the subtle as well. All details are on the website at www.intelligentedge.yoga. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mona. Enjoy. Hi, Mona. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Am I chatting with you from home today? You are. And so have you told the animals to be well behaved? What I chose was to lock myself in a room somewhere else and hope that it takes them an hour to figure out that I'm not where they think I am. Smart. Well, we'll find out, won't we? We will. I posted a picture to Instagram last week or the week before, and it's Henry looking into his dog bed, which has a variety of stationary objects in it 
which were the objects I had to throw at him while I was recording another podcast with a guest because he insists on being in the room sometimes, but sometimes he snores terribly. So I just casually let a pen land on his side. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It wakes him up just enough. That's awesome. But I bought him new cookies today for being a good boy at the groomer. And so he's, he will not budge from where he currently is in the kitchen because he knows which cupboard they're in. So that we should is pretty be good. amazing. Yeah. He's a terrible hunter, but he does have a good nose. <laughs> we cannot be all things at all times. True. He excels at companionship. Oh, a cuffa puppy. Oh, he's such a cuffa puppy. Has anyone written anything on Ayurveda and dogs? I don't know. I don't know formally. I know a few years ago in teacher training, though, uh, one student chose to do Ayurveda for pets as her topic for her essay project. Did you read it? Oh, of course. Was it fascinating? Mm-hmm. Totally. But I don't know that I can't remember. This was a lot of years ago now. And so I can't remember like which resources were cited or if it was a couple of website links. Um, But I remember and I remember talking to I think it was Dr. Anusha about this, actually, how the science of Ayurveda was designed to support all of nature and all beings. We focus in the classical text on humans um, we could stipulate in a whole bunch for us a whole bunch of reasons why that might be. <laughs> and yet we're from a biological perspective, we could in a way say that cells are cells and what Ayurveda does to support humans can can work quite well for pets. I know it it does for mine. I don't do a ton of like I don't herbify them or anything. Um, but when they're when they're cold and sniffly, I make sure they have warm broth in their food and if they're overheated, then, you know, we create more space for them to relax. And I actually re- invite them to lie on their backs and spread their paws everywhere to sort of air themselves out. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's kind of neat because the I believe the concepts apply to all of nature. Uh, we are nature. Pets are nature. So, yeah, it's fun. Actually, we'll use pets then. I'll ask you a very specific question before we zoom back out. I have a very clear memory of a yogi we have both known, or know, uh, named Michelle, and she had done some Reiki training around the time that I was still in Kingston, and Henry was still just a puppy, this is, you know, nine years ago, and he he was very hyper. And she, he was too much of a fan of Michelle. Michelle was very patient with him and lovely, but he came on a little too strong. And so she was trying to Reiki him, but he, he wouldn't stay still. (laughs) And so it was fascinating and hilarious to watch her try and shield herself from the painful enthusiasms of a puppy while also trying to Reiki him into calming down. That's pretty awesome. So here's my specific question. I have my answer, but you always have my answer plus a lot more information. Students usually generally understand that that certain elements guide seasons and seasons of life. 
So mid midlife adulthood, they are generally on board for understanding that it's governed by pitta dosha and fire and water elements, but they are surprised and not totally accepting of the fact that air and space and vata dosha govern later in life, the wisdom years, and kapha, earth and water elements, govern early life because they think of the the fast moving hyperactivity of this crazy puppy and small children in childhood. Can you expand upon why it's kapha in early life and vada in later life? Absolutely. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. The first is that kapha dosha governs and is responsible for all of structure, all of structure. And so even though in Ayurvedic teachings, we associate certain tissues as being connected to certain doshas, the fact that there's any structure at all means that it is very much in the wheelhouse of kapha dosha. And so times of great growth, especially in terms of our structure, have to be very much connected to kapha dosha because without kapha, there's no structure. So I love telling people, you you got incarnated into a body, that's your kapha. As long as you have a body, you have kapha. Now, how much kapha you have, a little bit different. And as you were saying, there's different stages of life and different seasons, all this kind of stuff. And then midlife tends to be um, the let's get things done stage, which it's really useful that the middle stage is governed by pitta, pitta being organized, uh, pitta being leadership, pitta being checklists, <laughs> pitta being checking things off the checklist. So very useful in the midlife. And then vata is basically the degenerative force, right? So when we think of vata and its qualities, things get lighter, things get drier, all the moisture and juiciness kind of, um, well, it just, sort of is less depending on what your nature or your property is. So when we look at the aging process, when we look in particular at the golden years, that's when we see wrinkles and that's when we see fragility in the structure, right? And the example I love to give my students is if you've ever watched a four-year-old play and they're like jumping up and down on the couch or they're jumping up and down on the bed they, of course, will flail, go flying, land on their head. All the grown-ups in the room will go, <gasps> there'll be that horrible gasp, inhale, crazy pause, and the four-year-old will jump back up and go, that was fun, let's do it again. And it's like, wow, right? This is kuffa. And it's, this is the, we could say the resilient or one of the, the gifts of kuffa dosha is this resilience, this strength, this bounce back this vigor, right? And then if you were, you know, say 45, well, let's even just go 40, 35 to 40, and you're jumping up and down on the couch or on the bed. And I don't think you deliberately do it, but something happens, you fall off, you land on your head. We're probably going to be, you know, <laughs> thinking, who do we know that knows first aid? And should we call 911? Um, probably going to have to go in and get checked. <laughs> so it's very different. Less bounce. Less bounce, less juiciness, less resilience, less um, 
less wateriness of the structure, a little bit more rigidity. We kind of get more solid and not not solid as in like strength necessarily, but solid as in fixed as we age, which is why when we're young, our bones literally can bend. But when we're 90, that's not happening, mm-hmm. <laughs> which leads me to example number three. My 90-year-old grandma is jumping up and down on the bed, not really sure what's happening, but hey, why not? And then something happens, of course, unplanned, and she bounces off the bed and lands on her head. We are most definitely going to the hospital, and the recovery for that could potentially take forever. Why? Because the qualities of Vata don't support that. <laughs> Light, dry, rough, mobile, subtle. Um, there's not as much juiciness. There's not as much vigor, right? And so... I understand how the energy of youth might lead somebody to believe that youth is governed by Vata, and they're not completely wrong because all of change and like anything changing, the season changes are governed by Vata. We know that this is well established in the texts. So the amount of growth and change that happens during youth although it is a primarily kapha time because there's so much structural change and so much tissue growth and development, all of that is guided and the way is led by vata. And so when vata is well cultivated, we would actually, when when vata is well cultivated, when the, the flow of the air element is moving through the channels in a way that's really appropriate and harmonious, the yogis would call that prana. Mm. And so because children tend to have very open channels and through the process of growth, all going well, um, the channels evolve well. If they're well-fed, they're well-loved, they feel safe. Then a lot of what we might call vata, it can manifest as prana in a healthy being. Because each dosha has a corresponding vital essence right? And so where prana flows well, we have energy and enthusiasm. And then when the flow of prana is disturbed, it's not going the way we think. We would then actually call that vata. Again, the word dosha means at fault, blemish, right? Causative factor of disease. And then with prana, or sorry, with pitta dosha, the corresponding vital essence is tejas. Tejas is intelligence, and we could see that as intelligence, as in Albert Einstein brilliance, being able to, you know, um, hypothesize all the things he did. We can also see it as cellular intelligence. My cells know, my liver cells know to be liver cells. They know how to multiply and when to do so in an appropriate manner. And so tejas illumination, and then when when that intelligence becomes the word that I've read most frequently in the text is perverted, right? So mm-hmm. where there's a, a shift, then we would we could, and we often do call that pitta, and that's the pitta imbalances we would talk about. And then ojas, the vital essence of immunity, vigor, and strength, when it becomes um, when the quality or quantity are compromised, we might then call that excess kapha. Hmm. 
So I appreciate that we should probably, <laughs> we should probably zoom out, but I'm not going to yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to be an irresponsible podcast host and an enthusiastic student. So a couple of places my mind goes. First, uh, so if, if we have cancer, if cancer is present, is that Pitta? Pitta dosha mm -hmm. run rampant? So when it comes to, when it comes to pathology, so all out disease process, often it's more complicated than that. Mm. And so in a lot of cases, um, something like cancer is often actually a tridoshic imbalance. And then we would look at like which tissue uh, we would start to s try to figure out, of course, in Ayurveda, always trying to think of what is the root cause, because if we can negate the root cause, we will shift the effect. Um, and so and so we're trying to negate root cause while strengthening the bala or strength of the patient um, and reducing the strength of the disease, because all those steps are really important. But something like cancer is tridoshic. There's a lot of moving pieces to that. Because if you think of a tumor, that structure, that's kapha. But the overgrowth is governed by cellular intelligence. So now we have a pitta imbalance. And often vata is involved in some capacity. Whether it's initially, that's what threw off the fire. Or it was moving too fast. So the structure wanted to build up around it to try to slow down the flow of the air. There's all sorts of ways that these things can happen. Pathology is um, fascinating and interestingly complicated. Another really cool example is, um, is diabetes, actually. Mm -hmm. In the Charaka Samhita, uh, diabetes falls under what's known as the obstinate urinary disorders, which I love that. That's the translation, obstinate urinary disorders. And there are 20 types. And so there are 14 types that are predominantly kapha-related, and then four types that are predominantly pitta-related, and then two types that are, are vata. And yet within that, there's the primary dosha, but it's deranging and disturbing the other doshas, as well as the tissues themselves, their quality, quantity, and function. So when we move into pathology, it uh, it is fascinating and it is very multidimensional from the Ayurvedic perspective. There's no one thing. There's always a lot of moving pieces. People are generally, um, I mean, I think people generally view Ayurveda as a system that tells you to drink warm water in the morning <laughs> and to you know keep silk gloves in the bathroom for your your daily exfoliation. I don't know that they necessarily appreciate the scope of of treatment available with Ayurveda. And so you've yeah. recently become certified as an Ayurvedic health practitioner rather than the sort of entry level uh, um, certification of Ayurveda, Ayurvedic health counselor. And so could you tell me how those differ and, and why you wanted to go to practitioner? Because that's a lot more work. It was. <laughs> it was a lot more work. So an Ayurvedic health counselor, and actually, I love that you asked this because I was thinking about it today. And I was thinking that we should talk about this. So it's perfect. I love I love how, how we have that synchronicity together. Um, 
the, this is the first thing I learned in my Ayurvedic practitioner course. I even remember being in the hotel because it was the teacher had rented like a room in the hotel, um, like a boardroomy type of thing. And we were all sitting in these tables that were shaped in a U. And I remember Dr. Anusha where she was standing in the room and everything. And that was my question. I was like, so what's the difference between <laughs> between what I'm already doing as an Ayurvedic health counselor and what I could be doing as an Ayurvedic practitioner? And she said, Ayurvedic health counseling is for Prakrita Vikruti. And what that means, Prakrita means your, your nature. And then Vikruti means imbalance. But Prakrita Vikruti refers to natural imbalances, predictable imbalances. And so things like my skin gets dry in the fall. Um, I get hot in the summer. I feel a little boggy, like my hands and feet feel a little puffy in the spring. These are all cycles and imbalances that are predictable. The classical texts have documented them, and we are, we're aware of this is, a, this is how it goes. And when we pay attention, we can then be preventative to maintain balance more accurately throughout the whole process, even of season changes and in each season. So it's the normal abnormalities or the the predictable imbalances whereas an ayurvedic practitioner is starting to work with what's called vikruta vikruti which means abnormal abnormalities and so that's actually abnormal abnormalities is disease whereas normal or predictable imbalances they can cause disease if they don't get balanced but if we balance them out, then we don't have to get sick. And so the whole AP program or Ayurvedic practitioner program that I that I took was all about these abnormal imbalances. And in that, they're a lot more challenging to work with because it tends to be a normal or a natural predictable imbalance that has then gone so far that all sorts of other stuff has started to happen. And the stuff that happens depends on the individual, their diet, their lifestyle, the region where they live, how long this has been going on. It's really quite, um, quite amazing to trace and track and to look through um, somebody's whole history to see where, where this abnormal abnormality might have begun. And sometimes it's really early childhood. It's quite, quite um, mind-boggling. So Ayurvedic practitioners can start to work with people who have full-blown diagnosable diseases, whereas Ayurvedic health counselors, their tool set is not quite um, able to handle that. They can still help people um, try to find balance, but they'll typically find that what they thought would work doesn't because it's become more complex. And so we need to use a more multidimensional lens to look at things. Before we cycle back and talk about treating, treat, treating and treatment, I want to ask how, how Ayurvedic health counselor and how Ayurvedic health practitioner fit in as complementary practices alongside allopathic treatment for things that require uh, 
strong intervention. So if you had a, a student or a client who was undergoing treatment for cancer, could an Ayurvedic health counselor support them or would it have to be an Ayurvedic health practitioner? Understanding that you're helping, trying to support them as they are maintaining uh, a strong relationship with their doctors who are overseeing their cancer treatment. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So it's interesting because halfway through my AP training, I had that exact client. So I, I had a client who came to me as she was undergoing another round of cancer treatment. So her cancer had returned and she wanted to know how, I, how and if Ayurveda could help. Given that her surgeries were were pre-planned and then from there they were going to decide on chemotherapy and any other such treatments, um, I used Ayurveda to help her help herself prepare for the surgery and then recover from the surgery. So pre-op and post-op, everything from diet, uh, meditation, post-op. If she wasn't going to be on meds, we were going to be able to work with herbs. If she was going to be on meds, we weren't going to go that route. So it was super interesting. And what fascinated me was I was able to observe in myself that the recommendations and my approach to working with her was completely different thanks to my Ayurvedic practitioner training. I was able to really zoom out and see what was happening from a bigger picture context. Whereas with health, as a health counselor, like everybody, you know what you know. You don't always know what you don't know. And what I didn't realize as a health counselor was that that was about helping healthy people stay healthy. But this woman who was about to have surgery to have an entire organ system removed due to cancer, that is inherently not healthy. Not that she's not a beautiful, amazing human being, but that whole context is not a context of health. And so the tools of an Ayurvedic health counselor are phenomenal to maintain the health of the healthy person. And then the tools of the Ayurvedic practitioner, and then even beyond that, the tools of an Ayurvedic doctor is to work and see if we can cure the disease process, which sometimes Ayurveda can and sometimes it cannot. There are definitely diseases that are incurable, even by Ayurvedic standards. How did it go for her? How is she? She's lovely and she's doing super, super well. Thank you for asking. When, when we reconnected and she was able to share with me how the journey went and, and how she was doing and... I, of course, do this thing where I, I, I maintain my composure in front of my client and then they leave and I start to cry and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad. Thank goodness. Because <laughs> there's so much suffering in the world, right? There's so much suffering in the world. And a big reason why I, I do the things I do is to try to alleviate the suffering that I can. And it, it moves me to my core when, when we're successful in those endeavors. It's really exciting. And that's why you added... That's why you added Ayurveda, because you set out on the yoga path to reduce your own suffering. And that's why you became a teacher. And so Ayurveda was just this natural extension so that you had more tools available. Ayurveda was a funny extension for me, though, because I thought I could heal myself with yoga. And I kind of did. But I sort of hit this plateau that I couldn't seem to 
get back to where I was before. Now, part of that is is funny that it, that I even said that out loud. We I don't know that we ever go back to where we were before um, when we look at the overall arc of the journey. However, I did feel that at the age I was at, I should have more energy given my diet to my lifestyle. And then I fell on Ayurveda in a yoga training. When I was at Kripalu, Suda did a module that was very... Um, had a lot of Ayurvedic pieces to it. And even from that one week of doing a few little Ayurvedic practices, boom, all of a sudden I, I was like, oh, this was the missing piece for me. And so I had done everything I could with yoga and it had created a tremendous amount of healing in my body-mind complex. And yet then this Ayurveda stepped in and w there was all of a sudden it was like, it's like when you're playing a video game and you finish one level and you get to the next level and you're like, whoa, there's all these other things. So that was exactly what I felt like. I was like, oh, Ayurveda is going to take me to this whole other level. And then I kind of did what I do, which is dive in head first and just keep swimming. Hmm. Do you ever marvel at how, uh, how many Ayurvedic faux pas <laughs> or perhaps Ayurvedic rules or guidelines are broken by the diet uh, that's popular to sort of be in tandem with yoga. Like yes. where, where you see <laughs> yoga, you see a lot of juice and smoothies and salads and frequently an impoverishment of spice and cooked foods and, you know, the worst devil of all gluten. Yeah. And, and the anti-dairy movement which again, if somebody is lactose intolerant, please do not consume dairy in any way, shape or form. Um, but dairy is the golden child of Ayurveda because of its ability to provide such deep, deep nourishment to, and to feed all the tissues of the body, including one's ojas. That's pretty potent medicine. Um, so yeah, it, uh, I find it very interesting and I have to keep remembering that until people ask me my opinion, um, <laughs> it's a good, uh, brahmacharya or energy conservation practice for me to, to just kind of listen. So, so, so something that I'm thinking about is the way in which I think sometimes people get confused between feeling numbed or even feeling like vada deranged and feeling well. It's interesting. I think people's perception of what feels good to them is just such an internal reference place. Um, and then that also is compared and contrasted by the individual, by their, their experience of the most suffering they've ever had, and then their idea of their experience of the most joy they've ever had, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like the the pairs of opposites, the gunas, right? Am I hot? Am I cold? Um, how much am I, like, am I suffering in an extreme way? Am I happy? Um, and then there's this whole continuum, and so it's a it's a real challenge. And from an Ayurvedic perspective, I often am am remembering that although we're exploring and we're trying to find balance on all the levels, if we can balance one of the dimensions of being, then there's a really good chance that we will more easily balance the other dimensions. And so I often start with what I call the biology, the body. 
And so if people are fairly light in their structure and don't have a lot of tissue or the appearance of their tissues are that they are lesser in quantity or not of good quality, another way of saying that would be not fabulously nourished, um, which might be the look that is appealing and celebrated in our culture, but it is not necessarily the health of the biology. And so I tend to start there with folks and say, so let's look at your biology and let's see how nourished you are. Are you overnourished or are you depleted? In our culture, we tend to lean definitely more towards depletion. Even when there's an overnourishment, a lot of the times it comes from a depletion. So there's an emptiness and then it's like a trying to fill the void. So it's really interesting and I find if we if we can help people understand um, that it's not about what everybody else is doing or about what people say, but it's about being able to really connect to their own body, their strength, their stability, um, and a sense of balance. Because I personally feel like the mental-emotional balance, for me, is very, very important. That not everything has to be the straw that breaks the camel's back that I don't feel like I have to bliss out or check out, that I can simply be with what is happening in any given moment with the full of my heart and the full of my being. And so when I work with folks, I try to help them find that place, that place of stability. That might mean you might, you might have to gain five pounds, and that might mean you might have to lose five pounds. That might mean that you need to change a little bit what you eat, although you're going to need to change what you eat with the seasons once you find balance anyways. So really, it's there's a huge mindset piece to it. It's really fascinating. We really cling to our beliefs, um, or we cling to what we think our beliefs are. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that, that maybe we are, are overnourished or, or over built overstructured if uh even but really we're depleted like that mm-hmm. arises out of depletion i was listening to cbc the other day because i'm frequently listening to cbc and the interviewer was chatting with a nutritionist of some kind not ayurvedic and she was saying how she was talking specifically about women and how most women are undernourished and the interviewer kept trying to draw out, but they eat too much. And and the nutritionist was saying, mm. <laughs> no, actually, I find most women are punishing themselves <laughs> with eating less. Now, food choice, we could look at. Anyway, I, I just found it really interesting that that this interviewer still wanted to toe the line that we are eating too much. When lots of people are suffering uh, privately because every food choice is an embattled one, and that is so rampant in our in in our our world and our culture, it's so rampant. And the other thing with some of the the diets we're seeing as being associated with the the world and the practice of yoga, what I've noticed is an evolution in an evolution, a creativity in eating disorders. Mm. And so I've noticed that folks will choose a particular diet. You can call it whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it um, 
gluten-free, if you want to call it paleo, if you want to call it vegetarian, if you want to call it vegan, if you want like pick pick a diet, pick grapefruit, Atkins, it doesn't even matter what it is, but people are choosing that saying I'm doing this because it's healthy, but it's their way of restricting their intake of nutrition. But because it has this these other aspects to it, and again, please don't mistake if you are celiac, please don't eat gluten, right? That is a legitimate biological medical reason um, to not eat that particular food, much like someone who's lactose intolerant. Even if you practice Ayurveda, don't drink milk, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If your biology can't do it, your biology can't do it. But so many folks are making these big changes where they're eliminating huge segments of nutrition from their diet for other reasons, And then we wonder why there is this underlying depletion, which very quickly tends to lead to either anxiety or depression. So then all of a sudden we're rolling in the mental, uh, the mental imbalances or the psychological imbalances. And then often this malnourishment also leads to a variety of hormone imbalances. And then we have all of that, whether it's menstrual challenges, fertility issues, or a real challenge going through the menopausal transition. And for the gentlemen in the crowd, I'm sorry, I know those are predominantly female um, examples. However, you know for yourself, you have your own hormonal cycles. You're more sensitive at a certain part of the lunar cycle. Um, there's a shift in, in masculine energy and the energy of the biological male um, as they move towards the golden years as well. For women, it's simply easier to see and to, to look at because we have a very specific biological feature <laughs> that highlights for us what's happening in our hormonal cycle. Um, so we have all of these different challenges and even we could say diabetes because it is a, a digestive issue. It's the pancreas. The pancreas produces insulin, but it also produces a variety of digestive enzymes and things like that. So it's a metabolic disorder, um, but it also falls under in a way, a type of hormone imbalance. And so we're seeing all of these disorders and diseases that are creating and causing so much suffering for so many people. Um, And there's a really good chance that a portion, at least, of the root cause is what, what we're eating or what we're not eating. Our willingness to show up for ourselves in a moment with how much nourishment and what kind do I need right now, as opposed to saying this whole entire segment of of the foods, this is bad. Mm. So I'm never going to go here. Because back on our original topic, everything in this world of form can be either a medicine or a poison. And it, it depends on the person, and it depends on their situation, and it depends, I call it dosage, the quantity consumed. And so where we're able to open our minds and recognize that every food, if you can digest it, has the potential to be your medicine, if you consume the right amount at the right time, then all of a sudden we can open a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities and a lot of potential for health. And then we can also recognize, so milk to the lactose intolerant person, we could say that's their poison because it makes them sick. They don't have the capacity to digest that. 
Therefore, taking it in simply creates metabolic waste or ama in their system. And the ama clogs the channels, and clogged channels is one of the breeding grounds for disease. And so for them, they know that's not good for them. It's, you know, we can remove that from the list. Before we shift to our talking about medicines and herbs, I want to ask you for advice uh, for myself and for other listeners, if you're willing to provide it. Over the summer, I shifted back to vegetarianism. So how, you know, how can vegetarians and vegans support themselves? How does Ayurveda view it? Um, can you talk to that a bit? Yeah. So my understanding is that Ayurveda is a predominantly, um, we could say, uh, vegetable or plant-based eating. However, there are, we could say, times of life, and we could also say seasons where adding meat and different animal products can be really useful to maintain balance in the system. And so as we move into the vata season, right, so as we move into the fall, where things get lighter, drier, rougher, um, where we end up very easily having challenges in terms of being able to nourish ourselves well and properly, this is actually the time of year where eating those heavier, denser foods, including things like meat, uh, for those who are meat eaters, this is, this is the season for it, right? Whereas the springtime would be more everybody kind of moves towards vegetarianism <laughs> after after hibernation, after winter, um, to help clear out the channels and lighten the system. Um, Dr. John Duyard wrote a really amazing book called The Three Season Diet. And in it, um, he talks about all the different sort of eating fads, all the different diets. And what I love about it is he talked about when that makes sense. And he draws it all back to seasonal eating. Right. So low fat, no fat diet. It works for a while and then you get sick. Well, it works great in the spring. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a spring season thing where he talks about the Atkins diet, all meat, you know, have bacon every day. I don't I'm going to be really honest. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I have yet to recommend that to anybody to my brother's great dismay. Um, <laughs> and I'm not confident that I'm ever going to. <laughs> Um, there's a season for that as well, right? As we move into the winter and as we need more warmth and more substance um, because the season is harder on us, right? It's more intense and it demands more from us. And so that part I find really fascinating and interesting. As for the in my heart aspect, I, I really understand that. That's why years ago I also uh, became vegetarian, which ironically was one of the kingpins to my uh, my great decline of my health. Uh, I don't have a constitution that lends itself very well to vegetarianism. Um, I, of course, did not know that at the time when I made the choice. And so anyhow, it was a great opportunity for learning. And I know for me, um, s most of the places where I get things like my eggs and my, uh, my lamb and my goat, um, I, I know the people who are raising them and I know they are loved and my dog plays with them when he, we go to the farm and and so that's one of the ways that I've worked to try to bring a little bit more balance into that aspect of things is to try to 
because I agree. I think the way a lot of the the modern um, the the treatment of a lot of the animals and the whole process there's there's so much to it and there's so much of it that just I it renders me speechless the amount of suffering and harm and all of that so I I am I I understand where people are coming from um and if somebody really can't do it then they really can't do it however things like meat soups and um specific meats for specific diseases are are well documented in the classical texts Mm-hmm. So, and the other piece that also strikes me is like, if you watch some of the National Geographic programs, there's a lot of hunting that happens in nature. <laughs> there's a lot of hunting that happens in nature. And I remember talking to my vet once because somebody I knew had decided to make, I can't remember if it was their cat or their dog, a vegetarian. And I was curious about that. And when I told the vet, he was horrified. He said, oh, he said, well, that's really not good for the animal, even if it pacifies the conscience of the owner. And I thought, oh, like this just got complicated, right? Mm -hmm. So many moving pieces to it. Yes, we used to we used to have a household policy that the the meat that we purchased had to follow the rule of very good life and one bad day. But. What what I found challenging was was family and people who are close because how do you articulate to them that there's that there are these standards that you're not going to move outside of? I found it very difficult um, to communicate to them because there's so much ethical washing in meat sales. Right. You can look at lines at the store that say that they're uh, free from this or that, but it, it says nothing about the quality of life of the animal, but it's packaged in green and it's got the right kind of imagery on it. I think, too, with family members, there's there's so much um, there's so much emotional stuff packed into food and sharing meals. And yes. I remember when I first so first I went vegetarian and that was very stressful for my family. And then I went unvegetarian, so I, I reintroduced meat. Um, however, I discovered that I had certain food allergies. And so as much as I was willing to reintroduce certain kinds of meat, um, there were other foods that then had to be for me. And it was as simple as if you serve that, I simply won't eat it. You don't have to cook me a special meal or anything. I have no such expectations of anybody. Um, but my my refusal to eat a food that was killing me, that was making me that kind of sick, um, really, really pushed some people's buttons for like four year a four-year process of pushing buttons. And I finally said to uh, one of my family members, I hope you can understand that I'm not choosing not to eat your food because I don't love you. I need to do this to take care of myself because when I'm sick, I can't be of service to my, to the whole world. Like I can't help anybody if I'm in bed sick or if I'm in the hospital again, that just doesn't work for me. And it took that kind of conversation for them to be like, oh, it's not about me. And I was like, no, it's not about you. It's about me. 
And so it can, but there's so much like emotional history stuff tied into food and the food we share and let me make you a meal and all these things. And I think those of us who've either had food sensitivities or we've wrestled with this, this question of conscience, right? Can I do this? Can I do this in good conscience? Is my heart okay with it? Because if your heart's not okay with it, your Agni, your digestive fire is not going to be as okay with it. So all these pieces tie into each other. Um, if it stresses you out, if your nervous system trips up, then your digestive fire is also impaired. There's so many moving pieces. Um, it's quite complicated. Mm-hmm. Definitely not simple. And we can be as eloquent as we have practiced becoming. People still might not hear or understand that based on their own lens of experience. I remember before I had my food sensitivities. Oh my gosh, this is super embarrassing. So one of my friends, she had always had um, a wheat allergy ever since I've known her. And we were having them and a whole bunch of other friends over for dinner. We were going to play cards and all this stuff. And then I was cooking and that's very intimidating for me. I'm not a fantastic, like I'm not a fantastic cook. I'm a proficient cook, but I'm not like, I'm not Martha Stewart. And so she came over and I was trying to coordinate like meal for 10 people, which was way outside my comfort zone. Um, And I actually said to her, so is this whole like no wheat thing really a thing and I should make you separate pasta or are you just going to like suck it up and eat what I make everybody else? I actually said that. I said that out loud. And then like three years later, I found out I had the same sensitivity. (laughs) And so I called her. I was like, Joe, I'm so sorry. I was a jerk, but I didn't know what I didn't know. It's so hard because, you know, Dr. Dr. John, who we've referenced, who, by the way, I thought I was someone who was very capable of spewing study studies and article (laughs) references, but I pale in comparison to Dr. John. (laughs) That is an enthusiastic man. So Dr. John says that if you want to eat wheat, before you say, I have a sensitivity, I cannot eat wheat, that Ayurveda provides some other options for exploring if you have a sensitivity or if you are actually eating in a way that is uh, impoverishing your gut to the extent that wheat becomes uh, problematic. But on the other hand, lots of people do uh, really carefully observe how they feel around every practice, yogic, lifestyle, Ayurvedic, and, and truly know the nuances of the effects of the food that they eat. And it's tricky for us to honor that in this culture because we love to to paint people with that sort of inconveniencing brush uh, because it is, it's hard to feed a lot of people in one go. And it's so interesting though, because I found that once it took me quite a while to orient to my own sensitivities, at, like my own food challenges which my two main ones are wheat and soy, which ironically eliminates pretty much all packaged food, which at first I thought it was inconvenient, and now I'm super grateful (laughs) because I'm not sure that would have been good for me anyways. However, as I figured it out for myself, I developed a whole bunch of great tools to be able to work with other people's sensitivities. So as I would bake with alternative flours, I thought, well, since I'm changing this up, I was really 
trying to become curious and to go go through the process as a way of exploration. So then I started to explore vegan baking because I actually love baking. Not a great cook, but I love to bake. And so then I started to explore vegan baking just to see if it tasted good. There were a lot of options that made it healthier than some of the traditional alternatives. I remember finding a recipe for brownies once that called for a dozen eggs. A dozen eggs, 12 eggs, one recipe. And I knew Glenn and I, Glenn is my husband, for the listeners who don't know me, I knew I was going to make a tray of brownies and Glenn and I were probably going to polish it off that night. Like we were just going to like, we were getting ready to watch a movie we were looking forward to. And I thought, oh yeah, we're going to do this whole tray in one shot. And then 12 eggs. I thought nobody needs to eat 12 eggs. So that's when I was like, well, what can I do instead of eggs? Because I still want the brownies. And for whatever reason, I was obsessed with the rest of the recipe. And so then I was like, oh, vegan substitution. Let's put in some banana. Let's put in some applesauce. Let's try flaxseed eggs. And so now it's super fun because I just need to know who has what sensitivities, allergies, and then I can just modify. It's kind of like a little switch this for that, switch this for that, switch this for that. And yeah, the taste may be a little different. That doesn't so. It's not not a bad thing. So I'm in a way really grateful for my as much as I struggled with the experience initially. I think it's opened me up in my willingness to try different foods. And I know that was one thing Glenn said about Ayurveda school for me he goes, you spent all this time just taking things out, taking things out, taking things out, eliminate, eliminate. He goes, then you went to Ayurveda school and you started to introduce more things and bring things back. He said, I never thought I'd see you drink milk again. He goes, now you won't drink cold milk, which I will not, but I love a nice hot chocolate with a good quality cocoa powder, some maple syrup, and and some amazing limestone organic creamery milk, local, loved cows. So it's been really fun to expand my world of food um, and in the process expand my health and to see just how how much of that can I can I do, can I bring in. For the last leg of our conversation, how many people come to you asking for supplements? Do people actually come asking for supplements? The people who know me well don't. <laughs> but they also know if I think it's something that would benefit them, then I'll make that recommendation. Um, what I find happens with supplements is I happen upon conversations. So I happen to be somewhere where a conversation's happening and people are like, I'm going to, I remember this was my favorite. I was at the bulk barn and I was buying, uh, ashwagandha because that is one of the herbs that I do take on a regular basis. And the woman at the cash. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I, I am aware. So I'm 43 years old. And I'm aware that probably for the first 35 years of my life, I ran in depletion. And so ashwagandha is an incredibly nourishing herb. It's very ogis building. It's heavy and it's grounding. I, in my constitution, am light and dry and I'm cold and I'm depleted. <laughs> so it's like one of the most perfect balancing herbs for me. So I tend to take, uh, I go, I don't take it 24 seven, but there, there are times. So this season, for example, uh, the fall season is a really challenging season for me. It's the hardest season for me to feel strong and healthy and vibrant. 
So Ashwagandha comes back on the docket for sure during this season. And so I was buying my little, my bag of Ashwagandha at the bulk barn and the cashier said, Oh yeah, I saw that. I was going to buy some. And I said, were you, what were you going to do with it? She goes, I don't know. And I was like, but it's a medicinal herb. That would be like saying, Oh, ibuprofen. That looks neat. I'll just start taking some, see what happens. And so we do this funny thing where we, and I think part of it, there's a cultural aspect where we've been told that more is better, go big or go home, um, all or nothing. And so, you know, let's supersize it. So we kind of have this mentality that it's all about medicine of addition. I have to add things. And then while I'm adding it, I'm going to take more and more and more. And we don't always realize how sometimes that can actually create a problem of its own. So we can, through our, our positive intentions um, of moving towards health and taking supplements, if we don't really understand um, the qualities of the supplement, the karma or the action of the supplement, and then the matra, the amount, uh, the dosage that makes sense, if we even need it, then we can really get ourselves in quite a bit of trouble. I hear this a lot when I do introduction to Ayurvedic workshops because people will often say, oh, I drink lemon and hot water first thing on rising. They say, oh, you know, do, do you struggle with digestion? No, <laughs> I just heard it's a thing. And it's not not a thing. But if you if your digestion is already quick, you can just go with hot water. You don't need to add the lemon. Correct. And so I think it's this, and I know I did the same thing with Ayurveda um, for the first couple of years because I didn't know what I didn't know. I always say sometimes we learn just enough to get into trouble, but not enough to get back out. Ha! I like that. <laughs> And it's in line with one of Einstein's saying where he used to say, the mindset you use to create the problem is not the mindset that will solve the problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I have often known just enough to get into trouble, but not enough to get out of trouble, which is why I added the extra studies of Ayurveda. Because <laughs> I had kind of done that where as a health counselor, so I... I knew I could help healthy people stay healthy, but I still thought I could help not as healthy people get healthy. And then it wasn't working. And then I was also having a few challenges in my own application of Ayurveda to myself, um, mostly because you can't see yourself clearly. And so I also got smart and <laughs> got an Ayurveda person for me. So I have somebody I see because they can see me more clearly than I can see myself. Um, and so doing the extra bit of training and starting to really understand like, oh my gosh, this really is so individualized. Um, Dr. Anusha used to go on rants where she would say, why does everybody say that everyone should take trifola? <laughs> you should only take trifola if you need trifola. If you don't need it, stop taking it. It's going to make you sick. Who are some of the people who need trifola? So folks who need trifola would be folks who, um, it actually, it really depends. There's a wide variety of reasons why trifola, that particular formulation, which is the other thing, trifola is a little more complex. It's a combination of three different herbs that are blended together. 
I think the reason why people think they should take it is because the herbs are what we call rasayana, which means rejuvenative. So each of the three herbs has a quality that allows them to rejuvenate a certain part of the gastrointestinal tract. However, that's not the only thing that triphala does. Triphala moves things through the gastrointestinal tract, but it has other gunas, other qualities. So for me, I thought, this is what I was saying about like knowing enough to get into trouble, but not enough to get out. I thought everyone should take triphala. So I started taking triphala and I went from being able to poop to not being able to poop. <laughs> so right away, I know something's up. <laughs> it's like, wait, but I worked really hard to have regular daily bowel movements. Where did they go? And you know that the stuff is still inside you. Like if it's not coming out, it's still there. Then I would stop taking the triphala and I could poop. And then I would start taking it again and I couldn't. So I asked Dr. Anusha, I said, Dr. Anusha, I said, why can't I take triphala? And she looked at me, she goes, oh, Mona. She says, You're, you have way too much dry guna for that herbal combination to be good for you because two of those herbs out of the three are drying. Mm. I didn't know that at the time. Then I was like, oh, I don't know enough. <laughs> right? You don't know what you don't know. So one of the three herbs is only a little drying, but the other two are quite drying. So folks who have a lot of dryness are not going to, they may benefit from the rejuvenative effects of, the triphala, but there are other rejuvenative herbs that are not drying. There's an entire episode devoted to pooping well, and I can't remember how much I talk about my own digestion, so I hope I'm not uh, coming across as obsessed with sharing information about myself in this regard. But when I was pregnant and traveling quite a bit, including down to Kripalu frequently, I knew that I couldn't take triphala because it's not safe during pregnancy, but I could take amalaki. And it became so essential to my being able to have a bowel movement that I internally wrote a little song about it to the tune of Rubber Ducky from Sesame Street. <gasps> Amalaki, you're the one. Exactly. You make pooping so much fun. You're in my head. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. But this had never been a problem for me. I now have Amalaki going stale in my cupboard because uh, it, if there's ever another kid, it's, that's going to expire before we get there. But yeah. For the for the right time and the right constitution, it was a big help. That's that's exactly it. And I think that's the thing with all the supplements, and not only the supplements, but with even every food. I love to joke with my teacher trainees because I think when we're new to yoga and we really want to get it right, like we want to be such good yogis, um, and we really want to be like, wow, I'm such a good yogi and I'm trying so hard. And so I often make jokes um, cause that's my nature about how any substance, if taken in excess will become a problem. And my favorite example is kale. Kale is an amazing superfood. It has, if you look at it from a nutrient profile, it has incredible nutritional value. However, if all you eat for five weeks is kale, you will not be okay at the end of that five weeks. Because there are a lot of other things that need to be consumed for balanced nutrition. 
Um, so the dosage becomes the, the dosage is actually really important. Um, but you also might not poop for the last four of those five weeks because it's an incredibly drying food. So how are you preparing the food? There's so many moving pieces to it. And what I try to invite my students and my, my clients to think about if they want to explore a supplement or if they want to take something, if they want to eat something, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why, why am I taking this? Cause I have tons of folks who will, <laughs> I get emails. I think I'm going to take this now. And I always email them back. Why? Like what, what are, what effect are you hoping to gain from the consumption of that item? And if they say, Oh, I don't know. Somebody said it might be good. Then I'll say, that's kind of not good enough. And I love you enough to tell you that <laughs> like, that's mm-hmm. not a good enough reason. What it's all about karma, right? What is the effect? And that's part of what we spent so much time in the AP program learning is what are the karmas? What are the effects of these different herbs and herbal combinations? So until I took my Ayurvedic practitioner training, I didn't offer people herbal recommendations or, or that kind of recommendation because they didn't feel like I had enough knowledge to do it in a skillful and safe way for them. And so, you know, add an extra couple hundred hours of training and a lot of study around the Ayurvedic herbs. And I'm excited because next month I'm going to go to the um, Ayurvedic Association of Canada conference in Toronto. And the reason I'm so excited to go is they're actually going to have a whole talk where they're going to profile a whole bunch of Western local like herbs we grow in Canada, like nettles and stuff like that. And they're going to, we're going to talk about how to apply the Ayurvedic lens of gunas. So quality, vidya, potency, vipaka, post-digestive effect, uh, prabhav. I call that the, er, the superpower of the, <laughs> the superpower unique feature of the product, the karma. What is the effect of the product? And then hopefully they'll be able to talk about matra and quantity. So what do, what an appropriate dosage would look like. But that's hard because it depends on the person and the, the challenge. So if someone only has a little imbalance, it might make sense for them to take their herb as food. So something like adding a half teaspoon of ashwagandha uh, to a hot chocolate, right? But if somebody has a bigger imbalance or a full-blown disease process, then they might actually need to take what we would call more like a medicinal dosage thousand milligrams a day. And so it really depends, but it makes me nervous when folks, um, just kind of grab a supplement off a shelf and then start, start consuming that because there's going to be an effect to that. And if you aren't sure what that effect is going to be, it's really important to find out, find someone who can help you educate yourself around what effect that is likely to have and who knows you well enough to be able to help you figure out, is that an effect you want in your system? Will that effect serve you? Will it move you in the direction of your health or further away from it? I think it's so exciting what you're going to this conference for, because I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the amazing gifts of globalization and the internet is that we can now start to take Ayurvedic principles and marry them to folk wisdom locally. Because if something's got the, got the effects, the actions, the karma, as you say, 
and and it's available from our own backyard. I think that's a really exciting thing to add to uh, to our Ayurvedic toolkit rather than having to import something from elsewhere. I couldn't agree more. And being in Ontario, where we are, there are so many herbs that grow so prolifically. Like people are begging you to bring your dump truck over and take them. And so if we can figure out how to apply those herbs, and it's neat because one of my good friends is a naturopathic doctor. And so sometimes we'll have these really, we'll go out to lunch and we'll have a conversation about this is how Ayurveda sees this herb. How does naturopathy see that herb? And so we'll start to talk through and see where we can find common ground or where we can learn more about each other's uh, approach to round out our own knowing and our own wisdom. And so I agree. I think this is one of the huge gifts of globalization, all of this information. And I'm so excited at the number of people who are looking to apply this incredible wisdom that has such detail and specificity, such detail and specificity. And then let's apply it to everything we have right here in our own backyard. Because Charaka in his, in that classical text, he says that the best medicines are the ones that are easily available. They are local and they are found in abundance. And Mm -hmm. so this idea of importing a bunch of exotic things from somewhere else, that's not part of the classical text because that doesn't sustain the earth. And they're so aware in Ayurveda about how the sustenance and the health of the planet, if that's if our planet's not healthy and if she's not okay, we're not okay. And we're not going to be healthy either. And so in a way, our health is a reflection of planetary health. But the Ayurvedis really wanted to care for the environment because they recognize how interconnected we all are. Planet and us and animals, trees, the quality of the air, the quality of the water, all of these things matter so much. I have so many other things to ask you, but I think we should shelve them for another day before we start to approach hour number two. So if some if someone wanted to find you to learn some of the foundations of Ayurveda or to work with you, how could they do that? So they would be welcome to email me. My email address is Mona, M-O-N-A, at Janati Yoga. This is going to be long. Sorry, folks. J-A-N-A-T-I-Y-O-G-A dot com. Um or they could head over to the website, janatiyoga.com. There's all sorts of stuff on there. Um, there's some Ayurvedic videos. I have some Ayurvedic online courses. There's some yoga classes, audio and video, um, all sorts of neat things on the website. I write uh, three to four, no, two to three times a month for our blog. Sometimes it's Ayurveda, sometimes it's yoga. This week it was a recipe. <laughs> it just depends. Depends what inspires me. So yeah, there's retreats and trainings and all that kind of stuff, but you can find all that information on the website if you're interested. And if they wanted to work with you, do you do Skype sessions? I do. I have a lot of clients. I work with a couple people in uh, the UK, lots of folks in the States, lots of folks all over Canada. Not every community has an Ayurvedic practitioner in it. And so if you can't find somebody local that you resonate with, I absolutely do sessions via Skype or Zoom. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Mona. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. I'll talk to you soon, probably. You betcha. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoy yourself, please make sure that you get over to iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. Leave a rating and a review. A description of what the podcast means to you would really be helpful. Thank you so much. Namaste for now, yogis.